<laughs> Sorry. Better stick that in there so I don't hit anybody with it. Well, good morning. Good to be with you this morning. Been looking forward to being with you. Of course, the opportunity to, uh, I have to say, have a little bit of an ulterior motive. The opportunity to get to know the group where my daughter and son-in-law are worshiping. So there's a little bit of ulterior motive there. But also, uh, the thrill to be able to come and to present God's Word to you and to uh, lead your minds in uh, a study of God's Word. I appreciate the opportunity, appreciate the invitation, and uh, I hope that we can be able to express some things to you and study some things in God's Word that will be of benefit unto us. Um, I, in, in talking with Evan, my understanding is it's kind of a class, sermon class kind of an arrangement. Um, if it's not, that's what it is this morning. It's going to be a class sermon class. So what we're going to do is is uh, study this morning, at least in our class period, one particular subject found in the book of Luke. And then I, I know that there had was a suggestion or a possibility of maybe if you want to, you could, if you think it would be. And so that's what I did for Sunday for the next service is we're going to be talking about women speaking in in the assembly or the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 34, and 35. So we'll be talking about that, doing just basically presenting some material in the um, 10 o'clock hour and then just some extra stuff in the 11 o'clock hour and then and obviously any questions or comments, please, on, on any of that. Um, I've often said that I learn way more in a Bible class setting than I do in me giving a sermon because I, I, I get the give and take and the thoughts from other individuals and that, that's always helpful. So this morning what I want to do is to take you over to Luke chapter 16 and let you know that your product has expired. There we go. Take you over to Luke chapter 16. And since I'm already going to be doing a lot of talking, and we've already had two gentlemen with excellent voices leading the songs and leading in prayer, how about we have someone who might be willing to read that particular text, Luke 16, 19 to 31. All right, go for it. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desired to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abram's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and seeth Abraham far off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from them. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldst send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and prophets, let them hear them. And 
And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded. So not an unfamiliar story, is it, for us? Not an unfamiliar uh, parable or story that our Lord tells. What's your first thoughts as you, as you read through this and as you have your mind thinking back on this again? Um, before we look at some of the things that I want us to, to consider, what, what is it when you read this passage that maybe catches your attention more so than uh, other passages? Or This is kind of a unique story, isn't it? I first think of he's tormented in the flame. Okay. I'm going to have a thought or two about that. Tormented in the flames. When you think how they lived in life, they're receiving the opposite after death. The rich man is now tormented where Lazarus was tormented while he was alive. Well, now Lazarus is in comfort. Did y'all see my sermon before I put it up? <laughs> yeah, we're going we're to be talking about that too. What's something unique about this passage? Yeah. Yeah. All everything is perspective, isn't it? You have a picture of the Hadean realm. Yeah. We don't know a lot about. Now let's face it. What do we know? I mean, there's a lot of unknowns about what happens after death, and this is one of the the only stories that really draws the curtain back after death and we see a glimpse of what takes place. Now some say, oh, but you know, this is just a parable. You can't really bank too much on that. What would you, what would be your response to that? Not told like a parable. Okay. Parables don't normally have people's names in them. Okay. Sure sounds like a... If, if, if it was a parable, maybe the only parable that did have a name in it. Yeah. So. And let's say, and I, I've told people, it's like, okay, well, even if I say, even if I agree with your premise, well, it's a parable. Did our Lord ever tell a parable that wasn't based in fact? Wasn't based in something that really happened? I mean, what was the purpose of the parable? In fact, the idea of parable itself is, remember what the idea of the term parable means? A parallel. It's parallel. It literally meant lay along beside of. So it is, here is something that is true, that is real, that maybe you're having a difficulty grasping. Let me lay something along beside of that that will have parallels to that that will maybe help you understand that. Lord's parables, even if we acknowledge it as a parable, even if that's how we view it, the Lord's parables were never based on fables and fanciful stories that that's just, well, yeah, this is some kind of a, uh, you know, kind of an Aesop's fable kind of thing that, no, none of that would really take place. But it teaches a lesson. The Lord's parables were never like that. So even if we acknowledge this as a parable, it's a parable based in fact that is pulling back the curtain of death for us. Um, let me talk a, a little bit about and at the end of every one of these slides, we'll, um, we'll stop and have some discussion. How long do I have to... Uh, 9.45. Three hours. <laughs> okay, well, each sermon, three hours, is going to be a long day. But, uh, no, we'll do this uh, 45. Okay. 
You know, one of the things, and Ruth Ann mentioned, one of the things that's interesting to me in, in this story is it's a story of contrast. And some contrasts that are really kind of interesting. Um, Brother Mark already suggested one of them, and that is we have a name given. But whose name is given? Lazarus' name. Abraham's name. When you look at these two gentlemen, why isn't the rich man's name given? I mean, if you're going to give somebody a name, you know, when people talk about name dropping, do you name drop the bum living under the uh, highway interpass or do you name drop someone famous or rich? Well, I think you really, you know, you think about it and I was just thinking, you almost think about whether it it, it might would be more effective to name the rich man because it's more likely that everybody would have known who the rich man was. And so I think you're, I mean, it almost seems like you're getting almost God's perspective on this and how he's viewing these individuals. Lazarus commands more respect than the rich man. I think that's exactly it. How many times do we see that we, even Isaiah says, your ways are not my ways, your thoughts are not my thoughts. And yet how many times do we think God thinks like I think? And God's perspective is my perspective. And therefore we can't understand why God doesn't because God should be viewing this like I'm viewing this, and this is how I'm viewing it, and so God's not doing it. And so then we put that over on God, and then we say, well, I don't like that kind of God. Well, I wouldn't either, but that's not God. That's your perspective being put on God. And what's interesting about this story is that's the very thing that I think God is doing. Everybody knew the rich man's name, right? In fact, if you knew the rich man's name, hey, I know. You know who lives there? I know that. That meant something. Didn't mean a thing to God. You're seeing this from God's perspective, and He knew Lazarus. How many people do you think in that time, if this is an actual story, how many th- people do you think knew the beggar's name at the gate of this man's house? How many people do you think knew that that was Lazarus? How many people do you think knew the rich man's, that that's the rich man's house and knew his name? Very different perspective. There's a second contrast that I think is interesting is what did the rich man need? Not a thing on this life, did he? More money. Yeah. (laughs) What did Lazarus need? How did he get to the gate? Somebody laid him there. He was dependent upon others. There's a third contrast and that is when you look at... Abraham's response to the rich man is you enjoyed your good things. What were those? Well, he dressed in purple. He was covered in purple. That was Lazarus covered. Sores. Uh, He lived joyously. He never had to worry about food, never had to worry about um, life. He joyously lived. How did Lazarus live? He just longed to be fed. And long to be fed. Remember it says, what kind of food did he expect to receive from the rich man's table? Crumbs. Just crumbs. I'm just happy with crumbs. That would fill me if I just had a crumb off of the piece of bread that you're eating. Not the bread, just the crumbs. And then 
What's interesting to me is that the way that the text states the ending of these men, the rich man died and was buried. What happens when famous men die? What do their funerals look like? I mean, if they're a political figure, big, huge deal. A political figure, they lay in state and everybody walks by them and ever. I mean, this is a huge deal. So he died and was buried. But notice that when Lazarus died, so this died and was buried. So this is looking at his life from this perspective, from the earthly perspective. But notice that the perspective of the death that happens to Lazarus is that he died and was what? Carried. So life for this man, this perspective, he died and was buried. A big deal made here. But when Lazarus died, what the view is of that is he's carried. Carried by the angels. Very different perspective. And then the obvious, the obvious uh, contrast is you've got one in torment and one being comforted. I want to make some observations. Uh, we've seen the contrast. I want to make a couple of observations. And then I want to look at some lessons that I think we learned from, from this text. One of the things that's interesting to me is that God knows your name. Sometimes I think people need to, to recognize that because in society, unless you're somebody, unless you're wealthy, unless you have some political clout, unless you have a certain last name, you're not really known. And yet the Bible clearly says that God knows our name. How much more personal can it get? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 19, Paul tells Timothy, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. And everyone who, know, who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. There are times in which individuals have had to live faithfully for the Lord and there's not support, there's not encouragement, but the Lord knows those who are His. Think of the passage in Revelation chapter 20. In verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I have a hard time with names, remembering names. So don't take offense if I ask you your name three times this week. I just have a hard time with names. And yet our Lord, the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, knows my name. What is it that is the determining factor whether one is in torment, or in comfort. It's not the region that you're in, the district that you're in, the race that you are. It's very personal. Your name will be in this book. And if it's not in this book, then you're in the lake of fire. God knows 
those who are here who are his. I think that's encouraging because sometimes maybe the local church maybe not giving the support, maybe the the smallness of the local church, maybe the particular area where they're at, they're, they're not getting that. God knows. God knows what's happening. And then Ruth Ann said it, don't assume what you're enjoying and experiencing now will continue. It seems as though sometimes I think Christians have, have this idea that, well, I just what I have now is just going to continue. And it may. The comfort and the pleasure may turn to anguish and pain, though. But on the other side, we support, uh, there at Richmond, we, we support some men in the Philippines, in Nigeria, um, in Africa. And the reports that we get from these gentlemen and the pictures that some of them send us, it is what they're living in, what is considered their 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 um, habitation. Uh, I mean, we it's true third world countries, and this anguish and pain and some of the things, some of the the you think COVID restrictions are difficult here. Uh, some of the countries of the men in whom we support, uh, incredible kinds of uh, adversity that that they face. The anguish and pain will be led to comfort and pleasure. Um, Why is it that we think that the way that we are now will be the way that it is in heaven? I think the most difficult thing, especially for those of us living in, uh, as citizens of America, the longing for heaven isn't always as longing as the longing should be because of the fact that we have such comfort and pleasure now. Those who live in third world countries, they have no problem longing because they so much more want something better. And they know in this life that's not going to ever happen for them. And so they know that their best hope is in the Lord. And that's something that sometimes I think we struggle with as Americans, that particular longing. Any thoughts or other observations? So what are some lessons we can learn? Well, the title of the lesson is not just the idea of general lessons that we can learn, but what I wanted you to do is to think about the fact, well, for just a moment, put yourself in the shoes of the rich man. You've fared sumptuously every day. You've done wonderfully. You've not had to worry about care in this world. And now you die, and the moment after death, you wake up and you're in torment. If, if you're that person, what do you suppose you'd be thinking? What would be some of the thoughts running through your head? <laughs> Well, you're real close. (laughs) How could I be in such pain? Notice how this is described. The word agony is to cause intense pain and to to be in anguish. And, you know, pain is one of those things that um, it's kind of a relevant thing, isn't it? Because you go into the hospital and what will uh, the nurse ask you? Well, rate your pain. What is it from you know, 1 to 10? Well, there are some individuals who, you know, they have a hangnail and in their mind it's a 9. 
And there's some individuals that they've just had a knee replacement surgery. As the doctor described it to, to my dad when he had his, said, basically, we cut your leg off and then put it back on. Now, can you imagine that kind of, I mean, incredible pain. And, those, and I can remember them asking dad, dad, what's your pain? Oh, maybe three, four. Pain is kind of a relative thing, isn't it? Some people can handle it. Some people cannot. So, so the fact that someone says, well, intense pain. Oh, yeah, I've, I have experienced that. Well, let me show you how it's described in this passage. All that is requested by the rich man is that just dip the tip of his finger in water and let that drop on my tongue just to get a little bit of relief. Now, how much relief would that supply? We look at that and say, not much. It was to him. So if that would be relief for him, if that would just cool off the tongue, to what extent is his suffering? It's almost another one of those contrasts, if you will. Isn't it interesting that all that Lazarus wanted was what from the rich man? Just the crumbs off his table. And all the rich man now wants from Lazarus is just a drop of water off his finger. And what's interesting in both those cases, neither one's going to happen, is it? Lazarus never got the crumbs from the rich man's table. And Abraham explains to the rich man, and you're not going to get any drops of water off of the finger of Lazarus. But to what extent would that, how much would that be suffering if just the tip of a finger with a little bit of water could, could ease that? And so maybe for the first time in the rich man's life, he wasn't just experiencing a little bit of discomfort. I mean, because remember, he had lived joyously his whole life. It wasn't just a little bit of discomfort. Oh, things are a little inconvenient for me. He was experiencing a level of suffering he had never had. Scary to think of how much pain one might be in if they choose to not live faithfully for the Lord. Be careful that we don't wake up and find ourselves where the rich man was. There's a second thing I wonder if went through his mind. You think if this, if you were the rich man and your whole life had been about more money, I think Evan said a while ago, more money, that's what, more money, more money. If that had been your whole life and living joyously and I want to have the greatest and the best and the finest of food and I want to have the greatest and the best and the finest of clothing and I want to be the envy and I want to be the standard by which everybody looks and says, boy, I wish I could live like he does. Boy, I wish I could eat like he does. I want to be that. Well, if that had been your life and obviously you had been looked up to, you might wonder at that moment when you're now in torment, why? Did I think so much of earthly possessions? Why did I get so enamored with them? This gets kind of uncomfortable, doesn't it? Because it hits right where we are in the materialistic country that we live in. Somehow, suddenly, the bigger house, more land, different, newer, car, better job, Suddenly the amount of clothes that I've got and the valuable jewelry that I desire and the standard of living that I want. 
I wonder if you have the same perspective on those if you're in the place where the rich man is. Now that had been what drove his life, right? I mean, everything about his life was about we've got to get more and more and more and better and bigger and newer, fancier. We've got to have all that. Does that sound a little bit familiar? Why'd you trade in your last car? Anything wrong with it? A lot of times, well, we justify it. Well, there's going to be a lot of maintenance issues. going to be this, that. Why'd you trade in the last car? Why is it that you have made any of the purchases that, that you have made? It, I'm not knocking any of those things. I, I'm just saying there's a point in time in which we have to kind of look at ourselves and say, am I really justifying my materialism or am I just really materialistic? And is what I'm so about... If I get on the other side of death, am I going to look back and think, what was I thinking? Why did, that, why did that seem to be so important to me? What did I see in them? Why did I think these things were so important? Yes, sir. The guy that was holding Lazarus had all he wanted. And... His attitude, I suspect, towards a beggar outside his door would have been a lot different than the rich man's. Like, you know, God blessed Abraham with all of that. You know, well, I don't know what parts of all of that, but, you know, had had all those physical things, as did Job and some others, you know, that were blessed in those ways. But, you know, it's ironic that Lazarus is in, you know, basically being held or comforted by another rich man, right? And we see that those rich men were talked about in very different terms, you know, uh, what they did with those things and their attitude towards those things. Um, I mean, you can see it in Job and his attitude towards those things. Yeah. Yeah, that's why so many times, you know, those, those who are rich... No, that's not what First Timothy 6 says. Those who desire to be rich. Is being rich a problem? Is being rich a sin? Well, it could be a problem, but it's not a sin, is it? I mean... His attitude, uh, you know, Job's attitude, you know, why would I, you know, basically take the good and not the bad? You know hmm? what I'm saying? Like, in other words, it, it's... Uh, I'm going to work and do the things I should do, and if God prospers me in these things, great but I'm going to work and do the things that I should do. And if he doesn't, great. You know, why would I? You know, I think some of them just basically uh, equate their value to how they accumulate those things rather than give credit to God for how they accumulate those mm-hmm. things. Right. You know, it's the idea of denying you know, God's attitude or the way God made this world, this idea of sowing and reaping. You know, you you think of your contribution as planting that little seed and him prospering you with this other and all of that, you know, like that one kernel turns into hundreds of kernels, you know. You, you, you do this little bit and he prospers you. If you think about that prosperity in those ways, uh, you're likely to have a different outcome than this guy. And the Bible definitely talks about the fact. I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, individuals who are rich, you know, we, we, we want to run to the rich young ruler and say, well, the Lord told him to sell all of his riches. Yeah, because that was a problem for him. 
But we see in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, command those who are rich not to trust in uncertain riches, but to be willing to share. So it's not a, well, if you're rich, you're in sin, get rid of your wealth. It's a, if you're rich, recognize you've been blessed, as you're saying, recognize that that's been given to you as a responsibility to use in the support and the help and the care of others. Exactly. And he says the same thing in Ephesians 4 and what, like 28. Um, so, so there's that concept. And, and we say that, but, but sometimes do we find, our, are we sharing? I mean, do we share as often as we could? Do we say we have that perspective, but then in reality we look at what we do, and maybe look at our checkbook or our bank statement and realize, kind of looks like I'm spending more on me and sharing much less. And it may be that that's the reason that God has blessed us so much in this nation and given us so much in this nation because of the poverty so much else in so many other places, God has blessed us so that we may be a blessing to them and might bring the equality that 2 Corinthians 9 talks about. But what happens to the man that says, well, God has blessed me and I'm going to use it all for me? Oh, that's who we're studying today. That's what this man did. Or Luke chapter 12. And remember the story in Luke chapter 12? The divide, the Lord, my brothers won't divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus tells him the story of the rich farmer who tore down his barns and built bigger barns. You know what's always interesting about that story? This is free. The interesting thing about that story is, was the man rich when he tore down his barns? He was already rich, but not rich enough in his mind. And so there's that that perspective of of riches. And so you might sometimes, you know, we we well, how? Maybe he was looking at how did I get so distracted by temporary things? You know, the Bible acknowledges the fact that riches can be a distraction, can't they? They can really distract us away from what we need to be doing and and serving the Lord. Uh, Matthew 6, 19 through 21, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven and not on on earth. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 7, we brought nothing into this world and we'll take nothing out. And then the three passages and the three versions of the parable of the sower. And remember in the parable of the sower, the the seed that fell on on the... uh, the ground that had the weeds in it and, the, and everything sprang up. But you have different things described there as to the distraction. You have the worry of the world, the cares of this life, the desires for other things, and wealth. Those things distract us to the point that we stop producing fruit for the Lord. Maybe that's what he thought. Maybe he looked at that and said, how did I get so distracted. That's here. When you think about, you know, what did he want his brothers to do with this warning that he was hoping that Lazarus would send back to him? Hey, don't get there yet. Okay. Okay. Hold that thought till we get there. You know, we all have those squirrel moments. You know what I mean by squirrel moments, you know, from the movie Up. Uh, We've all done that, haven't we? Uh, I I can't tell you the number of times that I go to my phone 
to do something, I pick it up, oh, there's an alert, and I look at that alert, and then I go to do something else, and then I put my phone back down, and I walk away and realize, oh, I never did what I originally pulled my phone up for. I got distracted. We all get distracted. That's not a huge issue, but it is a huge issue in our service to the Lord if we get distracted. And so, be careful, brethren, about distractions. I'll give you another lesson. You might wonder, or he might wonder, and if you're this man, you might wonder, why was I afraid to make changes in my life? I've talked to a lot of people over the years in, in, in preaching, and in, even just recently in helping our elders in a couple of situations that we have had in the last few years, and you just wonder, why? what is holding people back from making the changes that they need to make in their life? Even though they're encouraged to do so. Spiritual men, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, go to those who have fallen and encourage them. Uh, men are going and trying to get them to be converted from their sin in James chapter 5 and verses 19 and 20. Brethren, don't you know that if you go... You convert one from the air of his wave. You, you saved a soul from death. And then the passage in Obey those who have the rule over you in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Why is it that we get distracted? Well, the Bible or refuse to change our lives. Sometimes it's because we don't want to lose our old friends. We want to say, we, we, we're afraid, that, well, I might lose their friend. I might lose them as a friend. I might lose their friendship. Peter acknowledges the fact that those who have become children of God, that their friends look at them and they think it's strange that you don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation, he says. Which tells us that, okay, initially when we become a child of God, I'm probably going to lose some worldly friends. I'm probably going to lose them because we've got different worldviews now. But you know, as you begin to serve the Lord, you, you find out that there are some people that are claiming to serve the Lord that really aren't serving the Lord and I need to maybe stay away from them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's a passage that sometimes we don't recognize the fact that when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33, evil company corrupts good habits, the evil company in that context were other brethren. It wasn't the world. It was other brethren who had a different version of the resurrection, taught a different doctrine in reference to the resurrection. And Paul says, look... These brethren that are among your midst, you need to see them as an evil company. They're pulling you in a direction you don't need to go. And sometimes people say, well, I'm not willing to do that. I'm not willing to make that change. Maybe it's family. That's why, well, I'd have to give up my relationship with, with family. Which family? Which family is going to get you to heaven? That's the question that we have to ask. Or maybe it's position. You know, those... In John chapter 9, they uh, confessed that Jesus was the Lord, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't, or they believed that he was the Lord, but they wouldn't confess him. I believe that's John 12. This is John 9, where the blind man has been healed and his parents are brought in. And they wouldn't say how this man, their son, was healed because they didn't want to get put out of the synagogue. We're not going to make a commitment. And sometimes maybe we're, we're afraid of, of losing something, losing some sort of, of wealth. You know, it may be that you need a career change. 
Some individuals who come into the Lord's church, they immediately need to change their career because they're not going to be able to serve God in that career. But there are times in which, in the process of serving the Lord, maybe you begin to realize that, you know, temptation. My career is perfectly fine, but there are some temptations that I'm faced with. Maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe it's a female or a male co-worker. Maybe it's some sort of a situation. That that, that situation puts me in a light that, that it causes me to be tempted then there are times in which we've got to be willing to cut off our arm and to cut off our hand and to pluck out our eye. We've got to be willing to do drastic things in order for us to be saved. That's how important heaven is. Sometimes we're not willing to do that. I wonder, though, if we find ourselves where this man is at, I wonder, though, well, we wonder, why didn't I make those changes? Well, sometimes it's because, well, we just couldn't find a convenient time. You know who's in charge of convenient time? It's the devil. So he'll make sure that you never find a convenient time. All right, real quick. My influence may prevent others from listening to the truth. I want to get, uh, this is not going to have a whole lot of time. You know what the implication is? Why was this man worried about his brothers? Why worry about them? To me, the implication is he knew they would follow his example because in their mind, who had it all? Their brother did. He was the envy of the family. He was the example, the model of the family. And so all the other brothers looked up to him because he's got it all and he knew that. And he knew that, boy, they're going to follow me. You know, which would be worse, the physical anguish of torment or the mental anguish of knowing your influence might lead others to the same place. You're influencing people, good or bad. To the rich man's brothers, the question is, what if your brother was wrong? You know, one thing is the rich man calls Abraham father Abraham, so he knows who he is. And so it's not a matter of ignorance with the rich man and with his brothers. It's a matter of whether or not they're willing to do it. Yeah, I agree. One of the interesting things about this, how many times have you talked with someone and said, well, if what you're saying about baptism, or if what you're saying about my life, if that's true, then that means that my fill-in-the-blank with their relative, my grandma, or my father, or my brother, that means that they were wrong. My response has been to that, you know what? If what I'm saying is the truth, then they are wrong. And if they were wrong, then where they are at now, they would be saying, please listen to what I'm telling you. Listen to what the truth is. Because that's what this man begs for, isn't it? Someone go back and tell them everything that they thought is wrong. Listen. I wonder how many relatives in the Hadean realm, are begging Abraham to send someone back and to tell their relatives to listen to the truth. And to that man that you're looking at, you had to say, well, if I'm right and they were wrong, they already know that. They don't want you to be wrong too. And bring them to the story and say, you know, they may be begging from the Hadean realm for you to listen. It may or may not work. Sometimes it does. Sometimes individuals 
would say it, you know, it has no bearing. And then real quick, you know, here in this story, you really learn hopelessness. We don't have a clue about hopelessness. I mean, think about how it is in God's Word. We realize that we are sinners, but we learn those sins can be forgiven. What's that? That's hope. You mean all of my past indiscretions and, and, and poor choices? I mean, all of that that I've done that I now see is against God, I can have that forgiven? That's right. That's hope. We realize that we've not been walking faithfully, but that we can repent and be forgiven, as Simon was. That's hope. We realize that I've strayed from the truth and I can repent and be forgiven. That is in James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. We pillow our head, disappointed in our words or actions that day. But we pray for forgiveness. And we pray for strength to do better tomorrow. That's hope. But we die unprepared. And we awaken in torment. And we know our destiny is sealed. That's hopelessness. That's what this man experienced. And Abraham told him, or told him, I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do for you and there's no crossing over. You are where you are for eternity. There is no hope. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. That's it. Hopelessness. Any quick closing comments since we're already four minutes over? All right. Thank you, everyone.